Well, if you would take out your Bibles uh, and let us open God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 16 through 18. And I know that we are tackling a hard subject regarding the rapture of the church. And we're asking really the question, what about the rapture? What do we believe about the rapture? And we must understand that there's a principle that is taught to us as good Bible-believing confessional Presbyterians. That Scripture interprets Scripture. I know that you've heard that throughout the ministry of Dr. Bumgarner and Dr. Kelly, and I've even repeated it numerous times. And it's the fact that the Bible is simple in its understanding. There's a simplicity uh, to God's Word so that we might read it, hear it, understand it, and then be changed by it. And yet there comes times in God's Word where we stumble across what is being written, what is being said, and therefore we use simpler text to shine light upon the harder text or the more difficult text so that we might have a right understanding. And so to help us get these verses right, I want to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. And then we're going to keep our fingers there and we're going to flip over to Revelation chapter 1 and read verses 7 and 8. Revelation 1, 7 and 8 is on page 310, or 1310 in your pew Bible. And so you might want to go ahead and flip there as well. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. And then second, we'll read Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So that we might use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So now, people of God, hear the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through the end of the chapter. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. I think you know something of the concept of a sacred cow. Of course, that language is derived uh, from Moses descending from Mount Sinai. As he met with the Lord and received the commandments of the Lord, he descends from Mount Sinai and he sees there Aaron leading the worship of God's people around this golden calf in which he had built. Now, you have to understand something about this sacred golden calf in Exodus. It was not the intention of the people of God, nor of Aaron, to begin worshiping some false gods from other countries. They simply looked upon those false gods and looked upon those unbelievers that surrounded them, and they saw that they had idols, 
and they longed to serve the Lord, their God, Yahweh, in form of an idol. Now you know that Moses grew enraged and he threw down the tablets of the commandments because the second commandment there on those tablets said, Thou shalt not make any graven image. And he scolds Aaron and the people of God suffer for their false worship. But it was a man-made tradition, you might say, that they longed for. And sacred cows have appeared throughout Uh, the history of the church, generation after generation after generation, for the thousands of years of the church before us and for the thousands of years of the church after us. There will be these sacred cows, man-made traditions that will find their way into the local church and it will be something that you are not to touch. There will be man-made traditions that are held in parallel with the preaching of the gospel, they'll be held in such high esteem that you better not even question why you do it. It's just simply because that's what we do. There's no real defense. No one even remembers why or how it started, but you do it anyways. And and maybe you have a background like me that the Pentecostal church had many sacred cows. And you better not ask any questions about the sacred cows We just had the sacred cows because that's what the man of God, the pastor, said we were going to do. It was untouchable. And I grew up with many in my home church. But what it seems to me, what it seems to me is that the evangelical American church has a sacred cow that is the biggest and the shiniest sacred cow. And it's the teaching of the rapture of the church. This pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I told Pastor Don as I was texting him back and forth this afternoon, he was picking on me. He says, you can't teach the rapture without having the white head overhead projector and all these charts and moving parts. And I said, I don't have any charts, but my plan is to be frank, direct, and short so it would be digestible. But we have to understand right off the bat that this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, this idea that the church will be taken up just before the beginning of the last days, this literal seven-year period known as the tribulation where God will revive His plan with Israel and then at the end of those seven years, Christ will come again for His people that have come to faith during that tribulation, that quite frankly, we don't have that teaching defended in God's Word. You see, what happens in this pre-tribulation teachings of the rapture that, might I add, started in the mid-1800s. So for thousands of years before 1840-something, we did not have this teaching. That between the first advent, Christmas as we would call it, and the second advent, the second coming of Jesus there would be this secret coming called the secret rapture where God would, I guess, peek out of the clouds, call His people unto Himself, and then as I was taught, even growing up, that we would kind of hover in the clouds with Jesus and we would await these seven years and then we would return with all of these tanks and bazookas and we would destroy the evil one. If that was so... Why would Paul write in such a way 
where he encourages the believer, this persecuted church in Thessalonica, to hold out with faith, knowing that Christ will come again. And what he says there is that we will always be with the Lord at that second coming. And so our whole point here in reading 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 through 18 and Revelation chapter 1 verses 7 through 8 is to understand that besides the fact that this doctrine originated in the mid-1800s through the teaching of a guy named John Nelson Darby is that this teaching of this of this literal seven-year tribulation and then this literal pre-tribulation rapture and then this literal reign of Christ before the new heavens and the new earth are established just do not seem to be spelled out in redemptive history. Remember a couple of years ago as we were preaching the worship scenes from Revelation, I said that our Bibles contain different genres of writing. I've mentioned this numerous times since then, but we have Old Testament narrative, we have New Testament narrative. We have poetry and songs, and and then we have wisdom literature. And then in Daniel, and some in Isaiah, and then ultimately in Revelation, we have this apocalyptic literature. And it's to be handled unlike any other of the scriptural text. It's full of symbols and colors. It's full of, as if I saw this. Or what I saw was like this. It's full of similes and analogies. And it's not to be taken literally, it's to be taken symbolically, figuratively, so that we might see this redemptive history, that revelation and all this apocalyptic literature throughout our Bibles begin to tell us. And let me just go ahead and put this out there for all of, all of us who read our Bibles through the year And it's going to be soon and very soon that we hit Revelation. Revelation tells the same story seven times. It tells redemptive history from Genesis all the way to the coming of the Lord as He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth seven times. It tells us seven stories, the same story, in seven different ways, yes. But it tells us redemptive history showing us that in Christ we have the promises of Christ, We have the consummation of Christ, and then we have the return of Christ. The fullness of the gospel revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. So we're not to take Revelation with this kind of futuristic interpretation. Remember, I grew up in this dispensationalism is what what the, the eschatology, the end times teachings hold to, and they believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. This dispensationalism taught very clearly that, that John writes in Revelation to literal historical churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then from 4 onward through the rest of Revelation we have future events that are taking place. Everything that is happening in, in chapters 4 through the rest of the book of Revelation is to be futuristic in terms. They would even say that church is not mentioned, the word church is not mentioned in chapters 4 through 20. That must mean that they have been raptured out of the story. 
And even the rapture is before us as John is called up to heaven in chapter 4, verse 1. But again, if that was the case, why would Paul tell the people of God to faithfully walk in this pilgrim way until they are with the Lord always or forever? Why would he even say, as he says here in our text, and even the preceding verses in our text, that there is no such thing as a secret coming of Jesus because all people will know that He has returned. There will be those who are ready and those who are caught off guard having this false security of maybe their salvation. Even more, why would Jesus Himself speak? If you'll just kind of flip back over to Revelation chapter 1, why would He speak and say, I am the one who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty God? Why would He tell us that we should await a second coming instead of an imminent rapture before things get, quote-unquote, the worst? What I'm using here is this idea of a sacred cow so that we might understand. Do we believe in a rapture? Yes. We believe that the church will be called up. But as Pastor Don mentioned even last week, we believe that we'll be called up into the air so that we might meet Christ and then parade Him back to the new heavens and the new earth that He has established where we'll enjoy His reign for all eternity. There's a couple of things about the second coming that I want us to, to see here within our text. The first one is a glorious coming. The second coming of Christ will be a glorious coming. If you look back at our main text, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, we'll see how glorious His coming will be. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. What a glorious moment, right? Pastor Don preached a great sermon last week about the resurrection of the dead and even those who are yet still alive being caught up into the air. It's a glorious scene. It's a glorious scene that the saints of old are called out of their graves and their souls and their bodies are united together so that they can receive the full consummation, the full glorification of their salvation. But you notice here, don't you, that this glorious, this glorious coming is actually spelled out for us in greater detail in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, Christ is coming, John says, and He's coming with the clouds. Now you have to understand, and maybe you as a good Bible reader already has picked up on how the New Testament, Paul and John are using Old Testament language to describe this second coming of the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul and John here are not calling us just to behold this coming with the clouds as simply saying, direct your attention to the sky where the clouds and the heavens are. Remember, it was the disciples who were there on the Mount of the Ascension and they were looking up at the heavens and the clouds and the angel comes to them and says, what are you looking at? Don't you know 
that Christ has given you a command. He has given you a commission to go out into the world and make disciples. The call for us here is not to just peer into the clouds and wait. I remember, and I have a lot of these stories, and I'll try not to tell each and every one, but I remember going to youth camp as, as a young teenager. And, and I thought maybe for a second that we were joking, but the evangelists for the night of that youth camp would tell us that at any moment the Lord Jesus could return, and that is true. Paul's already told us that he could come like a thief in the night when you least expect it. And so he told us that we should constantly be jumping in the air so that we might help Jesus get us into the clouds. And I laughed and I chuckled because I thought that he was a fool. But he was being serious. That's not the command of the Apostle Paul. He's not telling us this news so that we might stand and wait and stare and gaze and jump to try to help the Lord meet us in the air. No, he's telling us that so that we might be encouraged. Verse 18 says, Therefore encourage one another with these words. The second coming of Christ is going to be a glorious coming and it is our motivation to carry out the good news of great joy, to carry out the gospel unto the nations. But you notice how he uses this Old Testament language to talk about how the clouds are the glory, the very presence of the Almighty God. It's this idea that Jesus descends. This second advent, He appears here upon earth to usher in this new heaven, this new earth, this new kingdom. And He fills this new heaven, this new earth with His glory. You think about it there at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. What surrounds the very top of the mount is the cloud the glory cloud of the Lord. You think about in Exodus 40 as the tabernacle is built and the Lord descends upon the tabernacle. How do the people know that the Lord is there at the tabernacle? How do they know that His presence dwells with them? It's because the cloud of glory falls. You think about in Ezekiel 1 how Ezekiel sees the glory of God in form of the cloud. Daniel, in his vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, says he sees the Ancient of Days coming on the clouds of glory. You even think about Peter, James, and John in Matthew 17 and Mark chapter 9 as they see Jesus transfigured. It says that a cloud of glory surrounds them. And even as Jesus ascends back into the heavenly places in Acts chapter 1, as he takes his seat at the right hand of God, he ascends on the cloud. And how did Jesus tell us that he would return? In Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 14, he says that he will return on the clouds of glory. Paul says the Lord Jesus will descend and Revelation chapter 1 says He'll descend upon the clouds. It's telling us that He will come with all glory from the heavenly places so that we might see Him, and not only us as His people, but that all might see Him. It's in our confession that we just recited together as our confession of faith. Not only will the bodies of the saints who have gone before us meet Him in the air, but the bodies of the unjust shall also be raised so that they might meet Christ and raise to dishonor. 
And so this idea of a secret rapture, this halfway rapture, maybe we even might say, is nothing to hope for. Our hope is in the glorious second coming of the Lord that we confess in the Nicene Creed that Christ shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. Now, I mean, of course, that implies, doesn't it? We've already scratched the surface at this, this glorious coming being both a warning and a comfort, bad news and good news for the people of God and for all those who are apart from Him. For those who is good news will be the very people who are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, who know holiness, who have walked in holiness, who are striving even to become more holy, and yet those who have this false sense of security that, that Paul talks about here in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, they will be met with wrath, unhindered wrath, unhindered fury. And let me just take a sidestep here. I remember being a young boy asking my dad, because the church would be raptured up before the seven-year tribulation, and there, then there would be this like second chance within these seven years. If you know anything about dispensationalism, you, you know what I'm talking about, that there will be some who will come to Christ within those seven years. And I remember asking my dad, Dad, you know, if, if they won't worship God, while it's, you know, quote-unquote easy to worship God, where we have the freedoms to go to church, where we have the freedoms to worship as we ought, why would they, when things get the worst of the worst, quote-unquote, why would they come to Christ then? Now, of course, that's my Arminian background coming out, right? Where I didn't trust the Holy Spirit to, to call believers unto Himself. But you understand the point. Not only can it not be secret, because all those who will be judged in wrath and fury, and all those who will be judged in the righteousness of Christ will see this coming. But also, we are experiencing that tribulation even now. And that, that brings us to this idea of not only is it a glorious coming, but it's a universal coming. If you'll look back at verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now you have to understand some of the context of the Thessalonian church. There's Jew and there's Gentile present. And as Paul, and even furthermore, John uses Old Testament language to, to talk about this second coming of Jesus, you must understand that, that it's no longer just Israel that is being called up into the air, but it's a universal church that is being called up into the air. It's a universal church from all nations, tribes, and tongues who are coming to meet Christ so that we might parade Him into glory, this new creation in which He has made so that we might reign with Him, our enemies underfoot for all eternity. You know, we could take the Old Testament prophecies like Zechariah, which speaks to the crucifixion of our Lord. But also in Zechariah chapter 12, it says that I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. 
Zechariah speaks of this old covenant people, but in an amazing spirit-led interpretation of the Apostle Paul and furthermore, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, we know that this goes far beyond ethnic Israel. And if you think back to that text in Revelation chapter 1, that prophecy in Zechariah needs to be ringing in your ear because it says, all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even those who pierced Him. And don't misunderstand what what John the Revelator is describing here. He's not describing the unbeliever. He's not describing the Roman, quote-unquote, that has pierced him to the tree. He's talking about the people of God. You know, we sing that new hymn, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that my salvation is finished. It is, it is us that at the second coming of the Lord with all tribes, nations, and tongues will wail, will cry out in repentance knowing that we have been assured by our pardon. And it's this glorious picture, I think, just as another side note, it's this glorious picture that even in heaven we will be a gospel-centered, a cross-centered people. Even in heaven we will never move away We will never become so mature in our faith that we aren't reminded of the gospel. For the Lamb who was slain will be there in our midst. And remember what the Revelator says, that for all eternity in the flesh, we will worship the Lamb that was slain forever and ever. We will see His hands pierced, His feet pierced, His side punctured for our sake. And the Lamb that was slain will be our centerpiece of worship and our adoration. So it's a universal coming. It's a a calling of God's people from all corners of the earth so that we might see the gospel clearly before us and so that we might rejoice in the gospel for all eternity. All the nations, all the kings of the earth, John says in Revelation chapter 21. All tribes and languages and peoples and nations will humbly come and welcome in their Savior and their King. And just because we're good Presbyterians, isn't this what God promised all the way back at Genesis 12, 15, and 17? When God calls Abram as He gives the sign of circumcision to Abraham, He says, He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations, Abraham, will be blessed through the cosmic work, the universal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the people of God will receive this glorious coming with rejoicing in in the gospel and repentance and assurance of our salvation. And yet, at the very same time, there will be those from all tribes, nations, and tongues who will cry out in despair because they have met a hell-fury God. If you, think about the, if you think about the text in Revelation that we looked at, as John talks about Jesus coming on the clouds of glory and every eye seeing Him, again, it's this idea that there will not be a second coming, but every eye will see Him, a secret coming. But at the second coming, all eyes will see Him, all the tribes of the earth. Notice what the people of God do. Even so, amen. We long for that glorious 
and that universal coming of the Lord. We, we long to, to have that consummated before us. We long to parade Jesus Christ into the new heavens and the new earth that He has made specifically for us. We desire the things of Him and to be in His very presence. We, we long with great expectation our glorification where our enemies and our sins are underfoot. But last, and certainly not least, we have an assured coming. If you'll look back at verse 16, notice that this isn't some hypothesis for the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I don't reckon the Lord will come. I don't hope that the Lord will come. But he says, the Lord Himself will come will descend from heaven with a cry of command. You know, Pastor Don, as he was preaching last week, he said repeatedly, you can take that to the bank. Y'all remember him saying that? You can take that to the bank. And in the words of Pastor Don, you can take that to the bank. Christ will come again. And we say yes and amen to His coming because He is the one who says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty God. I am the yes and amen of all of God's promises. I am A to Z and all in between, we might say. And as Christians, as we, as we have Jesus as our Savior, we must understand that He is the sum and substance of all there is. All of creation, all of human history, all of redemption, The lives of His elect He has purchased. And what is the meaning of all this? That He is the One who is Almighty and He has done all of these things. He has sovereignly governed and ruled all of history so that He might usher us into a new and a better garden. You see, that is what the the first coming is all about. And that is what the second coming is all about. As Genesis unfolds, as God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we have the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, you remember that first gospel proclamation. I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent. He shall bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. And then all throughout Genesis through Malachi, we're building up and we're preparing the day for Christ. And then His first advent comes. Because there has to be a punishment for sin. There has to be a consequence for sin and for failure against the law of God. There has to be one who will stand in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. And His first advent ushers us into the gospel with the sure and blessed hope of His second advent. That He has gone even now to make all things new. He has gone even now awaiting the consummation of our justification, sanctification, and glorification. He's waiting even now to usher us into the new heavens and the new earth. And and it's as if we'll be so excited that we will meet Him in the air just to parade Him back down. You know, it's Father's Day, and so I'd be amiss not to use a father illustration, I think. As Beth and I returned from General Assembly uh, on Friday morning, It was something to be seen. Because you know how it is when you leave 
for work or you leave for a trip and then your kids see you for the first time, especially when they're little, they run outside all the way to the car just to usher you back in. That is what the second coming of Jesus Christ will be like, beloved. That when we see Him, He will call us up into the air and we'll rejoice in Him as we usher Him back into His home, our new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. You know, I was reading a a Baptist brother's commentary on 1 Thessalonians 4, and he told in that commentary that this text is the defense of the rapture. Revelation 1 is the second coming, but 1 Thessalonians 4 is the rapture of the church. And we cannot buy into that. Why can we not? Because we have Paul and John spelling out the same great event. We have Paul and John describing a public event. The resurrection of the body, both for the just and the unjust. Meeting Christ to be judged or to be ushered into the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. Trembling at His presence. Either trembling humbly before Him because now we have beheld our great high priest, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, are trembling because we are about to face His unhindered fury and wrath. We cannot be ignorant to think that God will not keep His promises. And what are His promises? We glance into the upper room in John chapter 14 through 16 where Jesus tells His disciples, Do not be surprised when the world hates you meaning that in this life there will be great tribulation, and that great tribulation is even now. But then he tells us to take heart. Do not fear, for I have overcome the world. Meaning that we have the victory already, and one day Christ will come come again to usher us into that victory consummated so that we might enjoy Him forever and ever. Thanks be to God for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this, your word. And uh, even though, Lord, uh, these are some hard things to understand, thinking about the ends of time, let us not be confused by graphs and charts and even deceived by new and innovative teachings. Let us simply take the word of God and let it guide our feet as we pilgrim through this sin-filled world waiting for the day of your second coming where we meet you in the air so that we might rejoice and parade you back to the new heavens and the new earth so that we might bask in your reign for all eternity. Father, let that be our hope and assurance, but that that also be our motivation. For the second coming of Christ does contain law and gospel that for those who are just clothed in the white robes, of Christ's righteousness. It will be a day of rejoicing, but for those who are unjust, they will meet unhindered fury and wrath. Lord, let us proclaim the good news of great joy so that men, women, and children might hear the gospel, believe in the gospel, and hear those words of Christ. Come in, my good and faithful servant. Welcome. This is your inheritance to be with me. Father, we do pray that that would be the theme of our hearts Uh, Even as we strive to live faithfully, let us be a worker that is ready always to meet thee in the air. And let us be a worker who is found to be faithful. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.